Here's what's coming up on today's show. Collar that has a transmitter and a receiver on it that collects GPS locations at 15 minute intervals and then transmits those back to us. The birds that are reintroduced here come from two different places. One from from Montana, birds that largely oh. don't migrate. Tundra swans, a lot of, most of the tundra swans in the world actually fly over Minnesota. Um, Broadcasting from the Mid-Migration Outfitter Studios, this is the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? Minnesota DNR had reintroduced him into this area. I don't know, maybe you didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I, I knew you were going to go there. I'm going to close the entire hunting season. Oh, well, really? show is brought to you by Hay Bale Heights on Devil's Lake. Visit haybaleheights.com for more. By Tazan Lake Lodge in northwest Saskatchewan. For trophy lake trout in northern pike, go to tazanlake.com. And by Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Well, researchers are beginning a new era of trumpeter swan conservation this month by capturing and fitting swans with neck-mounted transmitters at various locations throughout Minnesota. We want to learn a little bit more about this research, why they're doing it, what they hope to learn uh, from from that research. So we welcome David Anderson on the show. Uh, he's uh, with Minnesota Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit at the University of Minnesota. Uh, David, thanks for being on the show. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you. So what what is the goal of this study? So a little bit of background first. Uh, as you might know, <laughs> trumpeter swans were extirpated from Minnesota in the late 1880s and were reintroduced starting in the late 1960s through the about the 1980s. And they have increased from zero to originally a goal of a few dozen pairs or a hundred or so more, hundred or more pairs to somewhere around 30,000 now. And so in Minnesota. And as that progression went from sort of extirpated to rare to now really very abundant, um, we know it turns out quite little about their basic biology, where they go, what kind, how they use the landscape, um, how many of them migrate long distances and how many of them kind of stay locally in the wintertime. So we're asking a lot of kind of basic questions about their biology with the intent of trying to provide that information to make better management decisions in the future as these swans are now much more abundant than they used to be. It's kind of an amazing story, isn't it? It really is. Uh, And it uh, it parallels some others, maybe things like uh, wild turkeys and Canada geese that were largely absent from the Minnesota landscape and now are relatively abundant. But this has happened in a relatively short period of time. Uh, You know, really almost no birds, no trumpeter swans in Minnesota through the 60s, 70s, and then into the 80s, and, and now we've got uh, a lot of them. So they occur pretty pretty widely across the state and in pretty high densities in some places. Yeah, I remember the days, uh, I suppose it would have been in the 80s, when seeing a swan was a big deal. And I, we grew up with a family cabin in northwest Wisconsin, and I remember the first time we saw, I think we saw four swans the first time flying around real high. And, we're, you know, at first, we were, and we were waterfowl hunting, so at first, like, gosh, are those are those snow geese come through there? You don't see snow geese really in Northwest Wisconsin either. So we, right. you know, we just kind of watched them. And then the next year we saw, I'm sure it was the same four again, buzzing around that area. And then the next year there was eight. And then the next year there was, you know, 20 or whatever it was. We, we literally watched that population start to grow. 
and uh, we saw that they had neck collars. So obviously there was a, a lot of research being done with those birds, and I, I suppose a, a reintroduction in that area maybe w- was happening. I don't know. I was just a kid, but it was it was a big deal uh, yeah. seeing those swans. And and then it, we, we talked before the show. We did a, a story on Carol Henderson on Prairie Sportsman and learned just his efforts in that swan recovery. And he was pretty instrumental in that process, wasn't he? Absolutely. Uh, he was very involved in the early efforts to bring swans eggs from Alaska and raise them and release them here. Um, the uh, uh, Three Rivers Parks also had an early a hand in some of the early reintroductions and then uh, moving swans around um, as a as a Minnesota DNR non-game program that uh, that was supported in large part by donations from Minnesotans. It was the wildlife che- wildlife checkoff, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, that was uh, that was nice. We we learned a little bit about how that came about too. I think Colorado or Wyoming had a similar program that uh, somebody learned about and brought the idea here to Minnesota, and and what a great benefit that's been for non-game wildlife in this state. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, swans. Why are you? Um, when did you get involved with this, and why did the University of Minnesota get interested in this project? So in my, my position, I work with a number of agencies, federal and state and non-governmental organizations related to uh, wildlife management and trying to identify research needs that we can help fulfill. And this kind of came from a variety of places that, you know, these are migratory birds that are managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Canadian Wildlife Service. So there was an interest there to try to figure out more what was going on with these birds. Um, they were a priority, obviously, for Minnesota DNR, both non-game wildlife who's been involved in their uh, conservation for quite some time, but also DNR wildlife who deals with waterfowl and has been monitoring their populations through waterfowl surveys for quite some time. And the Trumpeter Swan Society and others, and, and we kind of came together and said, we don't really know a lot about these birds. Um, and they have gone from rare to really abundant. and. To, to, to kind of go forward, we would like to have a lot more information. So that conversation kind of developed into a, a project that now supports a, a graduate student uh, who's working on his PhD, uh, David Wolfson at the University of Minnesota, who's leading up the charge on, on, on the logistics of the study and will be involved with uh, managing the data and making it available in the future to the public and to natural resource managers. Trumpeter swans are interesting, you know, because when you think of waterfowl and migrating waterfowl, you think about, you know, breeding waterfowl up in northern Canada and then they migrate down to the southern United States or even further in some cases. But uh, trumpeter swans don't necessarily take that long trek, do they? No. And, you know, their historical distribution was sort of largely kind of mid-latitude. So, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Dakotas, and then kind of up into Alaska. And so typical of a lot of birds, those birds that occur at that sort of mid-latitude don't have those long distance migrations for the most part. Um, What it appears with trumpeter swans here, and we're not sure how much of this is genetic versus learned, but um, there seems to be a variety in what they do. Uh, Some swans migrate fairly long distances, say from Northern Minnesota to uh, 
to northern Arkansas to spend mm. the winter. There are other birds that seem to only go maybe a few miles and find open water and, and forage and to spend Mon the winter there. To Monticello. <laughs> right, right. To Monticello uh, and the St. Croix, uh, Hudson, Wisconsin group of birds. So a real variety of strategies to kind of get through the winter. And, and that probably changes or potentially changes from one winter to the next uh, conditional on how much open water there is, how much forage is available and those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think some people don't realize that waterfowl, if they've got water and food, they don't necessarily need to go anywhere else. You right. Know, to, right. To, to go a south. great example of that is, is Canada geese who tend mm -hmm. to winter farther and farther north as long as they've got open water and can access food. They'll, they'll survive some pretty cold weather. Well, yeah. And, you know, anecdotally, I've heard some migration patterns for some Canada geese where they go from say Southern Minnesota to Winnipeg, <laughs> you know, and right, that's kind of the right. extent of their migration. And I've heard that about trumpeters too, that they may never leave the state of Minnesota. And, and this is probably one of the things you're trying to learn with this research, but do you think that is just because they never were anywhere else? They were introduced here basically, and they've always had food and water. There's no reason for them to leave. And the ones that have maybe flocked up with uh, some migrating geese or other waterfowl and headed south with them? Or how, how do you think that came about this way? I think that's a really interesting question. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we've been thinking about is, is how this all works migration wise is that a lot of birds learn migration patterns, especially large birds, from their parents or from other birds. And obviously these birds, these trumpeter swans that were reintroduced here didn't have any other birds that were gonna teach them where to go in the wintertime. So it, it looks like there's a whole lot of different strategies going on. And it also is interesting to note, I think that uh, the birds that are reintroduced here come from two different places. One from, from Montana, birds that largely oh. don't migrate and then birds from Alaska, which do migrate. So there may also be a genetic component mm -hmm. and we're trying to kind of tease that out uh, by taking samples of the birds, genetic samples of the birds that we work with. So the birds that were reintroduced here, uh, some of those came from Montana? Yes, correct. At the time, that was the only real known group of trumpeter swans left on the face of the earth outside of captivity. And some of those birds were the earliest releases here, eggs and eggs brought from Montana. And then subsequent to that, um, there was a pretty large population of trumpeter swans identified in Alaska. And that then became the source for reintroductions to Minnesota starting in the 1980s. So there's two different genetic strains of trumpeter swans that have been used as part of the uh, reintroduction in Minnesota. And one group doesn't have a history of migration and the other does. So that's another twist in the story, I think. Interesting. Do you like those little challenges in there, the, the little bit of history, or, or would you prefer uh, from a science <laughs> side of things if it, the sample was all the same? Well, you learn a lot from the variation. You know, if, sure. if every, everybody does exactly the same thing, it's pretty easy to figure out sort of what's, what's going on. But uh, when there's a lot of different things going on, then it becomes a little more interesting to try to figure out what things are associated with different strategies by different birds. Let's talk about the study, the research then. What is it uh, physically? What are you guys going to be doing with these birds? Yeah, so we started a kind of a pilot study last year with a few birds, but the bulk of our efforts are this summer. And we are capturing and deploying uh, GPS transmitters as a neck collar 
on swans throughout Minnesota. And then we have partners in Manitoba, uh, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ohio uh, who are doing the same. And we're catching birds when they're flightless during the summer. Uh, waterfall, most waterfall uh, lose their ability to fly for several weeks during a period when they are molting their flight feathers. And we capture them from a boat and deploy a collar that has a transmitter and a receiver on it that collects GPS locations at 15 minute intervals and then transmits those back to us through the cell phone system. So our object, our strategy sort of is to uh, mark swans throughout the state of Minnesota. And uh, then we hope that these transmitters should last another three or four years. And so we can follow individuals uh, for that period of time and kind of get a sense of what they do and try to understand why they do what they do. Uh, are they meant, are they designed to fall off at that point or is it, is there a way to recover that, those transmitters? The it's possible for us to go back and recapture some of the birds and remove the collars right now. Um, we are expecting that at some point the collars will de degrade enough that they will fall off. They're built so that they're two halves that slide together. Hmm. And if that fails, then they, then the device falls off, but we're not exactly sure how long that will take. We hope that it stays on for, like I said, three to four years. And then if you get, I, I'm sure you'll get a signal at some point if the swan dies, uh, the collar's probably not moving. Will you go try to recover it then and, and see what happened to yeah. that bird? The collars have what's called an accelerometer in them. So it gives you some idea of how how much they're moving and, and also a temperature sensor in them. So we can tell mm. when they stop moving and when the temperature goes down, that's a pretty good indication that they're not alive anymore. And so under those circumstances, we, we try to get out to find the carcass. We had a bird last year in Michigan that that happened to, and we were able to recover. Our partners were able to, able to recover that transmitter. And it turns out that that bird flew into a transmission line and mm. broke a wing and probably died pretty quickly in that collision, which is something we also are kind of trying to look at with birds in Minnesota. We'll be able to, to know when they cross over uh, power lines and look at at what that means for them. Yeah, I've I've seen that happen. I've heard of that happening too. Yeah, with the, some of those birds, and I've watched I've watched pheasant, pheasants do it when I've been hunting them before. They get right. up too far away, and, and you're like, oh, well, I didn't get quite close enough to that one, and then it hits power line. Oh, right, that's <laughs> <catch> it up. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's an issue easier. with some birds. You know, big yeah. birds aren't that maneuverable around things that they can't see very well. And it's, it's an issue with cranes and, and swans and some other things that uh, people are concerned about. So you did uh, a little bit of this research last year. Was there anything interesting that you learned about in that short amount of time, that smaller sample that uh, you, you found was interesting? We, we, we observed a whole variety of different kinds of behaviors. We had uh, you know one bird that I think we captured in the Southwest Metro area of the Twin Cities at wintered flew and wintered to in uh, Des Moines, Iowa for the for the winter time. We had a bird in the upper peninsula of Michigan that uh, flew back and forth across the north tip of Lake Michigan on and off during the winter time, probably to feed on one side and be near its breeding area on the other side is our speculation. 
And then we had some birds that, uh, you know, went to uh, known locations in Minnesota to spend the winter, like uh, some birds on the St. Croix River near Hudson. And, and I think we had one at, uh, at Monticello, too, where there's a congregation of birds in, this, in the wintertime. So right, you know, right now, I would say it's sort of what we expected, that there's a lot of different strategies that swans are using in the wintertime. And uh, hopefully we'll learn quite a bit more about that as we have more birds on, on the air. I'm sure you're trying to age those birds when you capture them. Uh, how how can how well can you age them? And are you looking for you know older birds, younger birds, whatever you can get? Yeah. We're targeting members of breeding pairs, so those birds are at least two and probably significantly older than that, probably four, five, six years old when we when they first start breeding. So we're looking primarily at the breeding population and older birds. With swans, you can't tell much beyond a couple years how that they're at least at least a couple years old and distinguish those from younger birds but beyond that we can't distinguish between a say a five-year-old and a seven-year-old but uh, we're focusing on birds that are that are breeding so they're adults um, but we just don't know how old they are i know birds like that Swans, geese, uh, even you know mallards, other waterfowl are hard to tell how old they are sometimes. And uh, one other aspect of identification when you talk about swans is the tundra swan, uh, which we do get a few of those in Minnesota. Obviously, I think you get more to the in the states to the west of us here. But how often have you encountered uh, tundras when you've been out there? So tundra swans, a lot of most of the tundra swans in the world actually fly over Minnesota um, from the Dakotas and most of them spend the winter on the Chesapeake Bay on the East Coast. So a lot of them fly over Minnesota, spend uh, part of the fall on the Mississippi River near La Crosse and then keep going. But they're, they're not here during the summertime. So pretty much any swan you see in Minnesota in the summertime or in the winter is going to be a trumpeter swan. Mm. And often the birds that you see flying over in large groups in early November, uh, late October are, are tundra swans. Interesting. I didn't realize. So we get a lot of tundras that winter in, uh, by lacrosse. They, in the fall, they're the there fall. for a, about a month. They're, they 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 kind of stage there, forage there, and then take the hop from there to the East Coast. So they have a kind of a strange migration pattern from kind of Western North America through the Dakotas, across Minnesota, stop on the Mississippi River, and then winter on the East Coast. So different than a lot of other waterfowl. Interesting. So when they come over from, are they coming over from both Dakotas, North Dakota? Are they following a river or what? What part of the state do they come over? So I see a lot. I live just north of the Twin Cities, and I see a lot of them here uh, during deer season, actually, usually is about when they're showing up. Um, so that's kind of, I think, not necessarily following any major river systems, but generally kind of northwest to, to southeast from North Dakota and into the pothole region of South Dakota, uh, Southwest or southeast toward the Mississippi River around La Crosse, and then from there to the East Coast. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, I, I have to ask this question because uh, a <laughs> lot of my uh, listeners slash viewers are are hunters, obviously, and you hear a little bit of chatter here and there about uh, because trumpeter numbers are so high. Uh, a potential hunting season in Minnesota. I know obviously this isn't probably your wheelhouse, but from a from a data standpoint, a population level standpoint, um, do we have enough trumpeter swans to support uh, some sort of hunting season in Minnesota? 
Um, biologically, uh, you know, there's there's uh, the growth rate of trump of trumpeter swans in the state right now is really high. Um, it's upwards of uh, a doubling time of four or five years. Uh, that probably won't be realized, but that's but the fact that's the rate they've been growing in the in the recent past. Wow. So for a population like that, it's certainly possible to take birds that and not affect their population overall. Um, but I would say that uh, you know decision about hunting seasons is a is a social decision sure. more than it is a biological decision and that's kind of in the in the political realm and I'm not sure where that would be headed in the, <laughs> in this discussion right now there are no seasons on trumpeter swans other than um, some limited harvest of uh, in, in tribal settings sure. and uh, it would have it, to, for that to happen would require action at both the federal and flyway and state levels and so that's an interesting process in and of itself. <laughs> it sure is. And we don't have enough time to get, go through all of that. And, and I, you know, I, I just like to look at, because it's definitely a social issue, the same thing with a sandhill crane hunting season, yep. which I think we could, we could support one statewide. Uh, the dove season obviously was a, a little bit controversial. When you have uh, an area like the twin cities, there is definitely going to be maybe some different opinions with, uh, within the, the, the residents of this population on certain certain birds and wildlife out there as far as hunting seasons. And I'm not exactly advocating for a hunting season sure. on swans. I mean, you know, I, I, I got a license for a, tr a tundra in North Dakota one year and I, you know, I kind of tried to hunt. I thought it'd be, I thought it'd be cool to maybe have one, you know, on the wall or something, yeah. kind of a, you know, kind of a trophy bird. Cause you know, swans are, are big and cool and majestic. I, I've heard they're not a, always the best tasting. So, <laughs> and I like to eat most of the things that I shoot. So I'm, sure. I'm not exactly advocating for a hunting season, but there's definitely people that have had that talk about it and it'd be kind of an interesting, yeah. you know, in a limited capacity, it could be kind of an interesting experiment. And, you know, obviously as you're probably well aware, you can gather quite a bit of data from hunters and, and, uh, harvesting game and things like that. And, um, and and you could also sell a license for it and raise some money for management and conservation of those birds. But again, I'm not advocating for it. I just want to yeah. make that part clear. No, but lots lots of different opinions about that. And you know, it reminds me a little bit about the discussions about wolves. You know, people oh, are passionate sure. about it on, on on all different sides. And so that's that that's the, the, the conversation that would need to happen. I think before anything went too far forward. Well, it's definitely a social discussion for sure. Yeah. But I always like to know, I always like to talk to the biologists and the researchers about the, the, the science and the data and the numbers sure. and say, okay, if society allows it, if the residents vote for it or pass it or whatever, would that, would it be sustainable with the population that's out there? And that I think needs to be established first. And then you can mm -hmm. discuss the, the social aspect, sure. but let's talk about research. I know we just have a couple of minutes left here. I want to, yeah. I wanted to ask you about, uh, this, uh, this group, I'm gonna, this unit of the Minnesota cooperative fish and wildlife research unit, at the Minnesota university of Minnesota. Uh, tell us what that is and what you guys do. Sure. So it's a partnership between the federal government, the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the University of Minnesota, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, and the Wildlife Management Institute. And it was uh, established in the late 1930s or early 40s. Hmm. Um, and there are 40 units across the country. And our role is to work with our partners and cooperators to provide research, that is uh, informs management 
and do that largely by uh, engaging and mentoring graduate students in graduate research. So uh, we have three, two people in our unit right now with a vacancy we're about ready to fill, but, you, but we have a human dimensions person, David Fulton. We're about to hire an aquatics person. That position has been vacant for a couple of years at our program. And so when that happens, we'll be back kind of up at full speed and uh, uh, engaged in in research that helps address conservation issues related to natural resources with a focus on wildlife and uh, aquatic systems. Well, I'm, I'm curious to hear about the results from this trumpeter swan study. I'm, I'm glad to see uh, the Environment Natural Resources Trust Fund is a part of this too. It's where some of the funds are coming from. Hopefully they get that new one signed here um, this year. I'm, yeah, that'd I'd be like good. to see that. But uh, good luck with it. When do you think we'll hear some more results from this research? I will just point out that we do have a, a public a, a website available to public that that monitors or that that lists the location of the swans that we have marked, so people can go on that at any time and find out uh, where their favorite swan is. And uh, we have, are, are producing reports kind of annually that are available to the public, and we hope to have kind of some definitive results to share within three years or so after we've given these swans a couple years to move around so we can see what they're up to. Very good. Well, uh, David Anderson, I appreciate the time here on the show and good luck with, uh, with the work with the trumpeter swans. You're very welcome. Thank you. This has been the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts or visit us at findingfurandfeathers.com. Devil's Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybell Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybell Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. As we all navigate through the tough times of 2020, finding new ways to enjoy summer has become a way of life. If you're searching for the perfect getaway this summer, look no further than the walleye capital of the world, Lake of the Woods. Fish the Rainy River, Big Traverse Bay, and don't forget you can still experience the uniqueness of the Northwest Angle. For your best chance to catch big fish, go where the big fish are, Lake of the Woods. Plan your trip at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. If Trophy Lake Trout and Monster Northern Pike are on your list this summer, book a trip to Tazan Lake Lodge in northwestern Saskatchewan. Everything from numbers to big fish. See pictures, videos, and more at TazanLake.com. This is quite the fishery. Our five-star chef will feed you well after a day of chasing giants on Tazan Lake. Dream come true. Get rates, dates, and more of what you can expect. It could be the best fish you've ever had in your life. At TazanLake.com. That's TazanLake.com. Tazan Lake Lodge is a proud partner of Tourism Saskatchewan. Hunt, fish, conserve, repeat. That's the mission here at Sporting Journal Radio, and if you love the outdoors as much as we do, show it off with new wildlife-themed gear from the Sporting Journal Radio store. From hoodies to hats, coffee mugs, wildlife prints, and you can even make your phone stand out with a new case sporting some high-quality wildlife photography. Go to SportingJournalRadio.com and click on Store. We have a huge selection of gear with new items being added every week. Powered by Shopify, which is trusted by over 1 million businesses and offering a variety of ways to pay, including PayPal. Shop now at SportingJournalRadio.com.